Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, though being in very nature God, when you came to redeem us, you humbled yourself and made yourself nothing. Though you were rich, for our sakes you became poor, so that through your poverty we might become rich. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the times we have taken control and have promoted and enriched ourselves for our own glory. We ask for your peace. Amen. Heavenly Father, you alone are the faithful one. You are you alone are the one who is able to look at each one of us and say your sins are forgiven. Only God alone can do that. You are merciful. You are full of grace. You long to forgive sinners like ourselves, and we are and will be eternally grateful. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're on our fourth of five candles on our Advent wreath, so we're on the fourth Sunday of Advent. I'd like Matthew Tate to come up, and he's going to read the scriptures pertaining to the angel candle. Good morning. This week's this week's Advent candle is the angel candle. And before reading that or before lighting that, I'd like to read the scripture. It comes out of Luke chapter two, ten through 14. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news for a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And a Merry Christmas. We have two scripture readings today. The first comes from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 and 6. That'll be in page 573 of your pew Bible. Our second reading will come from the New Testament, from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. Also in page 853 in in your your, uh, pew Bible. If you would, please, let's stand for the reading of God's word. From Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. From the New Testament, Mark 15, verse 33 through 41. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that was in this way, he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him there. were also other women who came upon him to Jerusalem. Now, as tradition with Christ Community Church, let's please have a minute of silence to reflect on God's word. glad to have the kindergarten and first graders to stay with us this morning, and it probably be helpful for parents to have them sort of follow along in the text as we make certain points. It'd be helpful for you to point out to them just different passages that we're looking at. <clears throat> I want to ask this question as we begin, what, what is one of the things 
that dominates this holiday that's really not a part of other holidays. I mean, there are a couple of things about the Christmas holiday that is common in this holiday that's not very common. You don't see it happen in other holidays. One of the things is music. You know, every store that you go into, you can turn on a certain radio station and everybody's attuned to the same kind of songs. You just find yourself sort of humming along, even if you're not very much into church or anything. You just have picked up the tunes because every Christmas it's the same tunes being played over and over again. And the other thing that is, uh, marks this holiday that doesn't really mark another holiday, let's say like Easter, are lights. You know, at Christmas you're going to string lights around your Christmas tree as you listen to this familiar music. You're going to put a bright light at the top of your tree, the star. And then if you're really brave, what some couples do together is they try to go out and put lights out around their house. Now, if Nancy and I try to do that, we just call a professional therapist to be on call in case any help is needed to rescue this marriage at the moment that we're trying to put these lights out together and string them up and get them to all work at the same time. Well, music and lights, they have a pretty good biblical precedent for Christmas. You remember the story in Luke chapter 2 that Matthew read? The angels come down, and what, what's happening? The glory of the Lord is shining around them. The, the presence of the Lord, in the Old Testament, what's called the, the Shekinah glory, it's, it's kind of a blinding light, comes out of the night and turns night into day. And they're coming and they're singing a song, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. What you see at the birth of Christ is night being turned into day. What you see at the death of Christ, what we read in Mark chapter 15, is day turning into night. I get the feeling that the creation somehow is keeping in step with the Creator. Paul says this in Colossians 1.16 about Jesus. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for him. And so when the when the creator somehow comes down and squeezes himself into the body of Jesus Christ, creation sort of bursts open and and lights up the night into the day. But 33 years later when we read about the creator hanging on a cross, it seems to me that the creation is responding again. And so from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from high noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun somehow bows its head as the Creator gasps for His last few breaths. In the three hours, no more singing. 
No more light. The, the singing and the light that's so much a part of Christmas now is gone. And when you get to the cross in these three hours, you don't have any words that are spoken in these three hours. And the earth seems to fall silent. The daylight turns into night. If you're visiting here, it's helpful for you to know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. The good news about the Son of God, according to Mark chapter 1, about Jesus Christ. And so we've been making our way all the way through the Gospel. And here, just providentially, we get to the birth of Christ. We're celebrating the Advent and we're reflecting really forward now and looking at the death of Christ. Because Christ was born for a particular purpose And that purpose included his death. So it's appropriate that we would look at that this morning. And I want to look at it in three different ways from the text. First, I want to I want to see what we see. I want to look at what we see in the darkness. What do we see coming out of the darkness when we read verse 33? When the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What is it that Mark wants us to see In this darkness. The second thing is, what do we hear coming out of the darkness? What do we see in the darkness? What do we hear coming out of the darkness? And finally, how do we respond to the light that comes from the darkness? So first, what do we see in the darkness? Verse again, verse 33, you have these three hours of darkness. And I think one of the things that Mark wants us to see in the physical darkness, where the sun somehow has been blotted out, it's, it's bowed its head and there's darkness in the land of Israel for these three hours, is that the crucifixion and the darkness that's represented in this three hours, Mark wants us to see that a life lived apart from its creator is darkness. Whenever you and I try to eliminate God or eliminate Christ from our life, whenever we we step away from having God at the very center of our universe and we center our lives on someone or something else, then our lives go dark. So if any point you've made a person or a thing the object of your worship, it your whole life seems to orient around that one thing. And if it's not Jesus Christ, then you live in a dark place. The Bible is pretty clear about that. John 3. These are all verses that Jesus are quotes from Jesus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because of their deeds. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 12, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know know where he is going. And the most familiar passage, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. Anyone who lives their life apart from his or her creator lives in the darkness. You might be familiar with this fairly popular novelist, Anne Rice. She wrote a series of very dark gothic novels called The Vampire Chronicles. And uh, I think some of them have been made into a movie. Big, long series, very popular. And if you would see Anne Rice or you have any pictures of Anne Rice on the Internet, she's always wearing something very dark, very gothic. And the, the novels themselves are very dark novels. And recently, from testimony in her own book, she became a Christian. And this is what she says in the back of her most recent book, which is about Jesus Christ, called Christ the Lord. In the little author's note at the end of the book, she says this. I wrote many novels without my being aware that they reflected my, my quest for meaning in a world without God. In 1974, I became a published writer. The novel reflected my guilt and my misery in being cut off from God and from salvation. And listen to this last quote. My being lost in a world without light. She lived in a world without light. She was living, and yet she couldn't see her Creator. Something else had gotten in the way. She was blinded to the person who really made her, who was really pursuing her, who was really coming after her. She was having a life, but she was living outside of the light. Some of you know that we have a little precious little dog, a little black poodle named Maddie. And so most of the time we like Maddie. Um, there are those occasions as a dog owner that you, you know, you struggle with having a dog, but, you know, she's fairly smart. And, uh, so I'm watching her the other day, and Morgan comes home, the, the sort of the owner, the person that she loves the most, and she can kind of just sense when Morgan's gonna be around. She gets the voice and all that kind of stuff. And we're up, I'm upstairs with Maddie in my frog, the, the room over the garage, and the door shut. And she knows Morgan's home, and she can kind of hear her come up the stairs, and she runs over, and instead of standing in front of the door, she stands in front of the wall. And she's about three inches from the wall, just barking and wagging her tail, rah, rah, right in front of the wall. And Morgan burst in like, Maddie, and Maddie's just staring at the wall, barking. And we take her to the vet and we find out that she's gone blind. Her, her, her lover, her, her creator rushed right into the room. And she's barking at a wall. I wonder how much that might describe our lives at times. The Creator at the Advent has rushed in to the world wanting to have you. And you've been staring at something else, barking at it like, this is going to give me life. This is going to pick me up. This is going to bring me hope. 
And it has no more hope of picking you up than a wall does. If you live in this world and Jesus Christ is not at the center of your world, whether you can tell it or not, the Bible is clear that you live in a dark place. As Anne Rice would say, you're lost in a world without light. There's a second thing that I think Mark wants us to see in the darkness. You know that the crucifixion is happening during the most popular Jewish celebration. It's happening during the Passover week. And so you have all these markers that are happening in these last several days of Christ's life. And if you were to read back on the first 13 chapters of Exodus, and Rob and Greg have done a great job teaching that book in Sunday school, but the first 13 chapters of Exodus bring you through a series of plagues. There's ten of them. And the whole story is bringing the Israelites, the Hebrews, the people that were, that were imprisoned or, or enslaved, Bringing them out of this dark land and bringing them into the, the land, the promised land, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so God is using these plagues to get the attention of Pharaoh, and there were ten of them. And the tenth plague that we know as the plague of the firstborn is where we get the celebration of the Passover. So if you take a pure, unblemished lamb, and you sacrifice the lamb, and you put the blood on the doorpost over your home, when, when the Lord comes down, when He comes down to judge everyone in Egypt, whether you're Egyptian or you're Hebrew, if you have the blood over the doorway, then the angel of death passes over you. But do you remember what the ninth plague was? The tenth plague was the death of the lamb. But what happened just before the death of the lamb? What was the ninth plague? The ninth plague was darkness. Darkness came down on the land. And so when we read this passage in Mark, Mark wants the reader to make a connection from the first Passover to the ultimate Passover. I mean, prior to this great exodus, you have the death of the Lamb. And prior to the death of the Lamb, you have darkness. And now Mark is saying, here is the ultimate exodus. You're not just going from Egypt into the land of Canaan. You're going from this world into a totally different world. It's a massive exodus. And there's one way to pass through this world into the next world. And that is living underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. And in case we just can't get it, darkness falls right before the real Passover lamb is sacrificed. So in the darkness, Mark wants us to see that if we live apart from our Creator, we live in darkness. 
And the way out of darkness is the Lamb. When John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb. This is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Point two, what we hear coming from the darkness. You see it there in verse 34. I don't think anybody would want to pretend to have the capacity to plumb the depths of what's happening in these three hours of darkness. But I think one thing that we, a couple of things that we can see in verse 34, Jesus pierces the darkness with a song. He actually sings out a psalm, Psalm 22. It's a painful song. I'm suspecting it's a song that Jesus had never sung before. He never had to sing this psalm before this moment. You know, Jesus had been making all these incredible claims. You read it all the way through the Gospel. If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. I and the Father, we're one. Even when He comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, He's crying out, Daddy, I know you're hearing me. He used the most intimate terms to describe His relationship with God the Father, but now he pierces the darkness with Psalm 22, and he doesn't use Daddy anymore. He uses a much more distant term, God, my God, not my Dad. Where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, at this moment, is completely consumed by the sin of your life and the sin of my life. The Lamb of God is taking on and swallowing up the darkness that's been brought into this world from your sin and my sin. And so he has to borrow the words of someone else, the psalmist in Psalm 22, and cry out, My God, my God. Paul describes what's happening at this place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He was not counting men's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Another translation says it this way. God took the sinless Christ. And poured onto him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. And somehow, the darkness lifts in the ninth hour. When Jesus sings out this terrible, yet beautiful song for our behalf. It's like the sun head comes up. 
And we begin to say, there's hope. In this darkness, the sun begins to say to us, there is hope for this world. I don't know if you remember the movie trailer for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The movie that came out a couple of years. By the way, Prince Caspian is coming out in May. And you can go online, and I might suggest you do it today, and you can watch the little trailer for Prince Caspian. It's really awesome. But if you would look at the trailer for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it just shows the movie in sequences, and then it has this black screen, and as the black screens progress through the trailer, it says this, In this house there are many rooms. There are many doors. And Lucy is running around the house. And then it says, but there's only one door. And she opens the wardrobe. And then the screen says, that leads to another world. And when she opens the wardrobe, light becomes rushing out of the wardrobe door. There is only one door from this world to the next world. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Mark gives us the same picture. In verse 38, you see this temple curtain that's been separating the people of God from God Himself. And there's lots of symbolism in this, but we've we've got this heavy curtain. And notice in verse 38 how it's ripped. It's ripped from top to bottom as if to say, let me show you who's been doing the ripping. God himself has ripped open the the separation between himself and mankind through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now you and I can be a part of this mass exodus from this world to the next world. I, I wonder if you really Realize this, where most of us are so young, we just don't think that we're actually going to take a trip from this world into the next world. And what is it that's going to take you on that mass exodus? How are you going to get from this world into heaven? And the Bible tells you, through Jesus Christ, He has come. He has taken all of your sin onto Him. And He has exchanged to you His righteousness. So that now when you stand before God, He looks at you and He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's incredible the kinds of people who step through the door. Who's the first person who steps through the curtain? The curtain gets ripped, and who's the first person who steps to the other side into the light? The text tells you. The very last person a Jewish person would think would step through the doorway. A Roman centurion. The Roman centurion is standing at the bottom of the cross and says... Truly, this is the one. 
This is the Son of God. And the Roman centurion spiritually and now physically has stepped in to a whole new realm of light and life. The Roman centurion was the antithesis of a holy person for a Jewish person. A Roman centurion had already said, I am serving the Son of God because Caesar was called in that time the Son of God. When you picked up a coin, it said, Caesar, Son of God on it. And the Roman centurion said, I've sworn all of my allegiance to another Savior, Caesar. This Roman centurion may have been the ones who drove the nails into Jesus' hands. At least his job was to say, I'm going to stay here and make sure this guy dies. That's my job. This would have been the hated enemy of the Jewish people. He has come in and he has raped our land. He has taken everything valuable from us. And yet what we see here, when God rips the the curtain in two, anybody can come through the door. Mark says in Mark 10.25, he's quoting Jesus, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. All kinds of the worst kind of people like you. Like me. Like the Roman centurion. All kinds of people now can step from this world into a world of life and light. And they don't have to live in this world of darkness any longer. If you're here and you're uncertain about your relationship with Christ, maybe you just say, I don't really know where I am. I don't know if I died today What would usher me into this next world? Is there even a next world? I want you to look at the Roman centurion and say, or at least understand, there's no way you could say this. You know, I've done too many bad things. The Roman centurion made sure Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he was the first person to step through the curtain. So no one here should say, he just couldn't look down on me and love me. If he knew the condition of my heart, he would walk away. He's walking toward you, perhaps right now. But you have to understand that you live in a world without light. If Christ is not at the center. Otherwise, you're going to be like my beautiful, cute, but blind dog. You're going to spend your life barking at the wall. Hoping that that wall is somehow going to bring in the creator, bring in the owner, and it's never going to do it. But here's the door. If you're a Christian, 
here. And you're suffering. And you feel like I regularly use Psalm 22 as a prayer. The one thing that the crucifixion can guarantee you is that God has not abandoned you. He did abandon His own Son. For what purpose? So He could be with you. Now, it may feel like at times, I just don't get the feeling that He's with me. But the promises of the Bible is that He says, I am with you. I know you may not feel like it right now, but I have turned my back on my only Son for the purposes of being with you. Jesus Christ has come, and we are to call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He has come. He is the doorway into light, into life. And He, whether you feel it or not, is with you. He is God with us. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm afraid, I'm concerned, I'm worried, I'm anxious about who might be in this room wagging their tail and barking and excited and staring at a wall. They've given their whole life to a person. They've given their whole life to a a career. They've given their whole life to, to something that can't give any life back. And I'm just praying, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes. That you would help them see themselves. That you would help them see the Savior. That they would hear something out of the darkness. For anyone here, Lord, that's suffering. That that feels like they live in darkness. May they hear these words today. I am with you. Lord, at this time we worship in our offering. We want to acknowledge there isn't a gift that we can give back that somehow earns what you've given to us. It's just our way of saying thank you for your incredible blessings. You gave out of love. May we generously give out of our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.